You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. Welcome to our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're calling it Dirty Church. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, and get ready to study God's Word together. Hi, it's good to see you. How are you? Good. Great. Listen, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 13 in the next few minutes. If uh, I am new to you or you are new to me, my name is Jeff. I have the true privilege of studying God's word publicly with you. Um, We're in the middle of a series on 1 Corinthians And we are in the midst of a section of 1 Corinthians that deals with spiritual gifts. So if that's ever been something that you've thought about or considered before, maybe you're new to the church or whatever, you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. You will. You will very soon. But maybe you've been somebody who's, you know, had an interest in that, have lots of questions. Today and the next couple weeks will be really, really helpful for you, I think. So I got to tell you this weird story that uh, happened to me when I was interviewing at a church in uh, California. Years and years and years ago, I came back from New Zealand, and uh, we were looking for a ministry, and I ended up going and um, trying out at a church in, in uh, San Jose, California. It, it was great. They were really kind and lovely people, but the first day that we got there, uh, the pastor asked me, hey, would you like to come and join our, our uh, baseball, our softball team? And I said, oh, sure. Um, He had asked me actually a little bit ahead of time, or asked my wife a little ahead of time, and she had went into the garage and grabbed a a glove. Now, I'm not the kind of person who holds on to like baseball. I didn't play baseball much uh, in my life. So the glove that we had was largely for like a 10-year-old, right? This is a real short little guy there. And uh, it had been around for a very long time. So she had grabbed this glove because apparently they said, oh, you, we might do this. And when I got there, they say, would you like to play? And I'm like, I don't have a glove. And she's like, oh, here, you actually do have a glove. I brought this. And so she gave me the glove and it was just a little tiny thing. And I was like, oh, sure, I got a glove. And so we went out and we started playing. Uh, I remember I was up to bat early, the first inning, in fact, and I hit the ball right to the shortstop and got immediately out, which by the way, like softball's an easy game and I shouldn't do that. It was like slow pitch, softball. So I wasn't really all excited about it. Everybody on the bench knew that I was kind of like the new associate pastor candidate and all that. So anyway, it was time to go out in the field, and they put me in right field, which was basically their way of saying, like, we think you are horrible. Um, So they put me out in right field, thinking there's no way that any ball is going to come to this guy. Now, I'm pretty coordinated. I'm, I'm athletically, I've always done really well. I can catch stuff. Anyway... If you're new at softball or baseball, one of the things you need to know is that if you're not very good or everyone else thinks you're not very good, the ball will find you. It's kind of the, the rule of the game. If, you, if you're the worst player on the team, it's like you're a magnet for that ball. So we had two outs, but they had like bases loaded. And uh, one of the batters got up and he hit the ball. He was right-handed, right? So he should always be pulling the ball because it's slow coming in. You should always be pulling. But he didn't. He waited a long time and he hit it and it was coming directly at me. Like, but it was brief, firmly hit and it was right at me. And I was like, this is going to be pretty routine, right? So I lift my glove up and now normal gloves, there would be extra space on the top where you'd catch the ball, Right? So I put my glove up and it bounces straight off the top of my glove and goes all the way to the fence. And so I turned around and I started running. I'm not fast in any way. And by the time I turned around, like almost all the runs had scored and the guy was going for like inside the park home run and I threw it in. He scored the home run. We got the next out. Uh, I felt really horrible and sheepish. So I kind of was giggling like, oh, this is church league softball, whatever. I ran in and I went into the dugout and all the people, all these guys who had been spending time laughing and talking to me, where are you from? How's it going? You seem like a really good guy. Silence. I would walk by them and I'd look at them. They'd look the other way. I sat down 
at the end of the bench and nobody came clear, near me. It was like I was pitching a no-hitter. There's nobody was a- anywhere near me. And I sat there and I thought, oh my word. My, my wife afterwards said, what was that all about? And I said, I, I don't know, I guess, they, I guess they hate me. My failure in the field, of course, meant rejection on the bench. Rejection is the worst. And I think that nobody ever wants to be on the end of that bench. I have a theory, in fact. I told you this story because I I have a theory. One of the reasons we don't get involved in our church and we're afraid is because we're afraid of ending up on the bench. On that bench, on the end, hear me out, people will see how we really are and how we aren't that good at certain valued things when we get involved and then we're afraid they're gonna reject us. Most people who I speak with, that's their fear. Like if I get close to people, too close, my fear is that they're actually gonna see the real way I am and I'm going to disappoint them. So I don't wanna get too involved in the church I don't want to get too connected. I don't necessarily want to use my gift because in doing that, they're gonna, I'm going to have to be evaluated at some point. Somebody's going to watch me do the thing that I think I'm good at, but it, the ball might bounce off my stupid glove. And then I'm on the end of the bench and I'm never going to want to go back to that place again. Most of us think I don't have a contribution to make. They're going to get along better without me. I'll be a disappointment, and so as a result, a lot of us, we just don't play so that we won't fail, so that it won't hurt. This passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, is uh, aiming to correct all of that thinking. Apostle Paul is trying to actually convince you and me and everyone who's ever read it that your gifts given to you by God, graced upon you by God. You don't deserve them. Your gifts are essential for the proper working of the local church. You're a Christian person. The church needs what it is that you have to offer. And you need what it is that we have to offer. Every believer is gifted And is needed for the church to flourish. And so here's what I want to do. I'm going to try to answer this question. Uh, How important is every Christian to the work of a church? How important is every Christian to the work of the church? And I'm going to give you three things to remember as it pertains to that question. All right? Here's the first. Uh, We are all part of one body. Very different people with very different backgrounds, very different gifts, but we are all part of one body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says this. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. You see what he's doing here. For just as the body is one. He's okay, so let's do an illustration, he says. I want to give you an idea of how it is that the church best functions and how important every Christian is to the proper working of every church. So here's a picture, says Paul. Uh, picture a body. And all of, it has different members. And by members, he means hands and ears and noses and feet and knees and hair, specific hairs, or some of you, not at all hairs. I mean, you have a body. So picture this image, he says. And let's play with this a little bit. That body is the body of Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Every person, no matter what their background, every Christian person has a story, and some of our stories are that we were slaves. Some of us, we were people who were uh, 
depressed and oppressed and in deep, deep trouble. We got there in many cases by our own doing. Some of us, we were drug addicts and given over to alcohol and sexual addictions and all sorts of things. We were Greeks. That's the way they would have understood that. That We were Gentiles. We were committed to all sorts of mess. Some of us, if you go and you ask us our testimony, you know, tell me how you came to faith in Christ, what we will have is a story that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We can tell you things about our backgrounds that are just mind-boggling regarding how far we went down the rabbit hole of evil. And then, some of us, we're the good guys. We're the people who came from Christian families. You understand what I mean by good guys? We weren't good guys, but we had all the trappings of morality around us. We grew up in the church, maybe. We're the people that when we went to camp and, the, and one, of the, one of these guys ended up giving their testimony, we were like, oh, come on, I wish I had that. I wish I was addicted to drugs, right? We're, but we don't have the thing to share. But Paul's saying here, look, it doesn't matter what your background was. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. We were all immersed into one body. I've talked about baptism before here, and one of the images that really might help you when you talk about it is like what happens when you get initiated into a fraternity or sorority. What you do is you go and you go through their initiation rites. In our case, we put you in a tub and we put you underwater and bring you back up as a symbol of what's happened to you. I died, right? Your old self died, and now you've been raised with Christ to new life. But when you get raised to life, in Christ, we are not saying to you, oh, this is something that's just between you and Jesus. It is. Just like when you go and get initiated into the fraternity, it's something that you, you get to get the tattoo on your arm. It's something you get to identify with. But you also get initiated into a brotherhood, a sisterhood. So it is with Christ. Those who are baptized into Christ Jesus, are baptized into one body. Into a fellowship, into a new brotherhood and sisterhood. In fact, all were made to drink of one spirit. We all have the spirit of God in equal measure. One person over there didn't get more and you didn't get less. We all drank, we imbibed on the spirit of God, equally so. So we might have gotten here in different ways, but now that we're here, we're in the same boat. Now that we're here, we're in the same boat. You know what, coming to faith in Christ is a lot like joining the military <laughs> without the guns. It, it's like coming to faith, you know, coming to faith is, when you get into the military, one of the first things they do is they, they basically take away all of, the, all of the symbols or remembrances of what you just came from. So, so you might have been really, really rich, and they put you in the chair, and they take their little razor guys, and they cut your, head, your hair off. They do that to the rich guy. The next guy who's down might be the poorest guy in the entire place. They cut his hair off too. You, you all have to look the same, and they will give you Regardless of whether you are a drug addict, regardless of whether or not you, you like ran the drug addict redemption hospital, they will sit you in a chair and they will give you the exact same clothing, the same boots. And they do this so that they can reinforce to you that we are all the same. We are all one. We all belong to each other. There's no distinctions. Regardless, uh, regarding any of our backgrounds when you come into the military. You're a Marine now, son. Right? Well, in the church, you're a Christian now, son. Daughter, you're, you're a Christian now. Your whole life has been redefined. Everything about you. Yes, but I used to. Used to schmoose to. You're a son of the living God now. You're a daughter of the living God now. Just like she is and he is and he is and he is. The spirit dwells in you. Just like he does me. Just like he does that. Yeah, but I want more. We have the same amount. All are one. In Christ Jesus. 
you see pictures of this kind of uh, community being formed in the Bible. <laughs> and sometimes if you stop and you think about who's coming into these communities to dwell together, you're kind of like, oh, that would have been an interesting Thanksgiving. I'll give you an example. Matthew chapter 10. He lists off the names of the 12 apostles, right? The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, there was Simon, you know, the loud mouth. He's called Peter. Always saying what everybody else should be saying or was thinking, but he just has the courage to say it. Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother. These guys called the sons of thunder. <laughs> like if you're brothers here and people call you sons of thunder, that usually means they, you're kind of intimidating and you'd like to, to make a lot of noise and be you know, pushy a lot. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and here's where I really want you to pay attention. Matthew, the tax collector. Tax collectors in those days were basically sellouts to the Romans. Like they didn't really like, the, the Jews did not like the Romans coming and, and having authority over them. It was their land and they were like, you need to get out of here because at the end of all the days, we're gonna have another David show up. He's gonna kick all you guys out. So you're the enemy. And any Jewish person who is going to partner together with the Romans in any way, especially to collect taxes for the Romans, was a wicked turncoat. The kind of people that in quiet we want to string up. And here we got Matthew, the tax collector, as part of our group. Boy, I'll tell you what. If he's going to be your tax collector, you shouldn't get anybody who's a really, really serious Jew who wants to take back the land violently. Uh, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. And, oh, look, Simon the Zealot. This guy's a warrior. He's basically saying, I will die kicking the Romans out of here and killing every one of their partners in crime. Can you imagine these two sitting on the log next to each other at the fire? Hey, what did you do, says Simon the Zealot? Uh, uh, I don't. Well, I worked with the Romans. Ah, you know, you can imagine this. That Jesus deliberately shoves these people together in the, in the same group. Was one more apostle than the other? No. Very different backgrounds. One really committed Jewish nationalist and one, hey, I'm just in this for the money. Both leave it behind. Both join, get their hair cut. You're Christian now, son. There's another story in the Bible that I, I absolutely love because of the imagery at the end of this story. I think I've told it before. It's about a guy named Mephibosheth. His, uh, he was the son of Jonathan. And Jonathan was the best buddy of David. And when Jonathan died, Jonathan was going to be the next king after Saul. And so the next king after Jonathan would be his son named Mephibosheth. Jonathan dies. David's alive. And so the people in the palace are thinking to themselves, well, Mephibosheth should be the next king, but the kingdom had been given by God over to David. And the, things that, the thing that a new king does with all the old king's relatives is to off them so that there's no claim on the throne, no, 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 no uh, other person who can say, I'm actually the real king. Follow that? So David comes into the, into the palace and Mephibosheth is ran off. Before he gets there, and they drop him on the ground, and he hurts his leg. And he grows up in a little place called Lodabar, in the middle of nowhere, way, way, way over near Rockford, right? Like, way over there. And one day, after years and years, one day, David decides, I'm going to go and keep my word to Jonathan. I, I actually said that I would take care of his family. So I'm going to go and take care of Mephibosheth. They find him. They take the king's you know, chariot out there. The king stays back in Jerusalem. The king's chariot comes off with all his officials and they knock on the door of Lodabar and Mephibosheth is thinking, oh my gosh, this is the day that I've, that's haunted me all these years. He's come to kill me. They grab him, they put him into the chariot, they ride back to Jerusalem, they get into the, king, into the palace. Mephibosheth falls down and he says, what does the king want with a dead dog like me? I am not a threat to you, David. Look, I can barely walk. I'm crippled. 
And then David surprises him. He says, you don't need to have any fear, Mephibosheth. I actually want to restore to you all of the property that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And all his servants and all the, all the, all the, all the, Mephibosheth's like, what? What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. I want to show favor on you for the sake of my word that I gave to, to Jonathan. And so he ends up being joined together in the palace with David's kids. When it's dinner time, Mephibosheth gets to show up at the table and eat at the table like one of the king's sons. And the line at the end is, so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. What does it mean to eat at the king's table? Well, that you're a son of the king. He was lame in both his feet. In other words, he shouldn't have been there. And yet what God, what, what David had done is it welcomed him in to be a full member of the family. That's what God has done to every Christian everywhere. He has invited you in and his tablecloth falls over your crippled feet. And everywhere you walk in your whole life, you are reminded, I do not deserve this. And every other Christian is another crippled Mephibosheth who is eating at the king's table. It doesn't matter where they came from, what they deserved in the past. They are Christians now, son. We are all one in Christ. There is no believer who just doesn't belong in the body of Christ. You've ever told yourself that? Stop it. Every one of us just doesn't belong. <laughs> but that's the community that God has created. A bunch of just doesn't belongs. There's no just doesn't belong in the body of Christ. You, you look, you might have a great background, a rotten one. Jesus may have rescued you out of the gutter or saved you through loving parents. All were baptized into one body and made to drink of one spirit. You belong here. We're all part of one body. Second, how important is every Christian in the work of the church? Well, we're all needed in the body. So he's going to play with this image now. For the body doesn't consist of one member, but of many, right? Head, shoulder, right, yeah? Now, if the foot should say, this is supposed to be kind of funny. This is an illustration. Okay, like a picture of the foot talking now. And if the foot should say, look, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. Like, I'm not really that important. I mean, you know what's really, really important? Hands. But that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. Now, eyes are the best, right? You can see out of them. Oh, I'm just a lowly ear. I've got nothing to add. I'm over here on the side of the face. Nobody wants to look at me. I'm filled with all sorts of, you know, I, I don't belong to the body. Of course you do. That would not make it just because you don't think that you're part of the body. You're gifting. He's dealing with giftings here. Just because your gift is not like an upfront one, that does not mean that you're no part of the body because everybody's part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, this is a monstrosity, yes? Right? Mon Mike Wazowski, that, this, is, this is the idea. Those of you guys who know this, Monsters University, Monsters Inc., he was a whole eye. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of, where would be the sense of hearing? Well, nowhere. When, when, when the wolf comes out and starts to run around you as just an eye, he's going to eat you, eye, because you can't hear him. If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell, where would be the sense of smell? Well, it wouldn't be anywhere. In other words, these monstrosities would be 
really limited in their ability to function the way a body should function. But as it is, God, this is a great word, arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where, where would the body be? But he did it. Look, as he chose, uh, my wife is really, I, I think she's really good at decorating. And I will tell you right now, I am not good at decorating. I, here's my idea of decorating. You just, you carry the, the couch in and where it lands is where the Lord wants it to be. Because it's hard to carry the thing in there. And it will never move because that's a, that's a waste. I would put a couch down in the middle of a room and I would string the cables out to the TV in the middle of the room and prop it up and just lay on the couch and watch that. And I'd be cool with it. You'd come over and you'd be like, oh, it's a very, you know, very sparse house. And I'd be like, yeah, it's fine. Right, because we have a couch. and, and the... Now my wife won't let that happen. Uh, she has to arrange everything. She's got to come in and she's got to have a look at it and then she consults somebody else. What do you think? And then this lamp goes here and that lamp goes there and I'm like, it doesn't matter where the lamps go. But they do, right? She has to arrange everything just how she wants it to be. I just let the things arrange themselves. This is the point that's made here is that there is a deliberate act on the part of God to arrange things exactly as he wants it to be. The ear is where the ear is. The eye is where the eye is. The mouth is where the mouth is. It's all so that the body will function properly. Just think about that for a minute, guys. If, you, if God, if, there, if we just let the body grow whichever way the body wants to grow, you got two arms on one side and you're like, well, that doesn't work very well because like, you know, God arranges the whole thing, just like he does in the church. He arranges everybody exactly it is where he wants to be. If all were a single member, where would the body be? And as it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye can't say to the hand, right? So another picture of them, the body talking to each other. In the last part, it was like, oh, I don't belong in the body. Now the eye says to the hand, I have no need of you. Which is odd for an eye to say, because seriously, what, is, what do eyes do? Well, they see things. They see friends. They go, oh, I want to go over and give you a hug. How will I get there? And what will I do when I get there? There's pie. The greatest thing in the world. There is pie. I see the pie. I'm looking at it. It's within reach. I don't need you, hand. What? You're not eating pie then. You can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head, you know, you start thinking about pie now. Oh, pie. It can't say to the feet, I have no need of you. Because the pie's on the other side of the room and you're not going to get over there if you don't have a feet. So look, eyes, really important. Hands, really important. Oh, Really important. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker, this is probably a reference to your internal organs, they seem to be weaker. I mean, when's the last time you guys thought about your kidney? Now, some of you are like, all the time. You know, that's what keeps me up at night, man, is the state of my kidneys. Most of us, though, we don't think about kidneys ever. We don't ever, it doesn't even cross our mind about the kidney. Okay, then you don't need it, Right? It's useless, that kidney. In fact, I think you can live on one. So let's just take our kidneys out and throw them on the ground. Well, no, they're actually indispensable. Those who have gifts that we never talk about, who kind of fly under the radar, they're not showy. We don't think to ourselves, man, I would hate to live without a leg. Those... Those gifts in the inside, right? I mean, we, we might not want to live without a leg because it's such an important body part, but we don't think, oh, I don't want to live without a spleen because we won't talk about it, but it's in indispensable even though we don't talk about it. And on the parts of the body that we think less honorable, I'm not going to tell you to guess what, that's it, what that is, but you can, yes? We bestow greater honor and on our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. In other words, 
they're, they're parts that don't show up in everyone's image. In fact, we try to hide them away from other people, but they're really important, are they not? It's funny, um, what he's talking about here are the gifts that people have that are totally behind the scenes and that don't get any playtime. Where I, where I used to be a pastor, one of the things that we did is a lot of the pastors who did like public speaking or um, our care pastors who did uh, funerals or weddings and things, we would often get gift cards because of course people wanna share the gift card with you. What we would do is we'd take the gift card, it didn't matter the amount, we got a gift basket, gift card, whatever. We were the ones who'd always receive it, but we'd take that card and we'd, during our staff meeting, we'd put all the names in a bucket and we'd have somebody draw and it was the names of all these other administrative people, people who are doing accounting and stuff and we'd read the name off and we'd throw the card at them and congratulations, this is what Paul's talking about. You treat them differently. You treat them with greater honor. Just because they're not doing something that's flashy does not mean that they don't have flashy value. But God has composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, so that everyone in the body will recognize that I have a part to play and I have something to give. But that the members may have the same care for one another. In fact, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This last week uh, or two weeks ago, we were on a trip down to Nashville and John Nichols, the pastor, he's the, he's the campus pastor of our Elgin campus. He just one night, uh, he apparently got a real back problem and the next day we were going to the, he couldn't, he couldn't do anything. He had to lay on the ground. You ever had a back problem? Like this, I, let me tell you something, all you young people about back problems. You think, eh, the, I'll be able to carry on. No, no, you won't. No, you won't. And there's not a single part of your body that won't be committed to the health of your back at that moment. I don't care if your arms, you're moving around and you stay still in whatever position that you can get that makes that back problem go away. Yeah, I'd walk it off. Dude, you won't be walking at all. Your brain will be complaining the entire time. All your focus is on the back problem. Why? Because we are unified wholes. Every part of us has an influence on the other parts. And Paul's saying that. Don't, don't you see how this whole thing works? We belong to each other. See that little sign is all over my neighborhood right now, there's little signs that say, we belong to one another, and of course my neighborhood's saying, see, we all have a part to play in the health of our neighborhood. But that's nowhere near as true for my neighborhood as it is true for the church. We all belong to each other. My gifts, my goods are yours. And your gifts and your goods are mine. This is the radical nature of the Christian community, or at least the way that the Bible describes the whole, the whole thing. Do you remember that um, there's a story about the rich ruler in the New Testament? This guy comes forward, and Jesus tells me to sell all you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. The guy's really rich, so he walks away sad. As he's walking away, Jesus says, how hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? It's harder for a camel to go through an eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And then Peter, God bless him, he pipes up and he says, well, man, we've, we've left everything to follow you. And then Jesus says, oh, I don't need you to worry. Peter says, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. What is this a reference to? I brought this up before. What is that a reference to? In what way will we receive many times more when we have to leave behind our family and certain goods and our houses and all the things that we've committed our hearts to to follow Jesus? 
You're saying that I'm going to trade that in and I'm going to get more from where? Are you, God, are you just going to open the, the storehouses of heaven and drop it on me because I was so committed? No. Guess where you're going to get many times more? Look to the person next to you from that guy. And across the room from that person and from that person. The radical nature of the Christian community is that we share all the stuff. No one said that anything was their own, it says in Acts. But they shared everything with each other, not because it was some sort of government program, because they willingly recognized that I belong to you and you belong to me. My stuff belongs to you. Your stuff belongs to me. And that has to do with your goods and your gifts. That when you do something amazing for the kingdom of God, my response is, woo, my team. Like we got Michael Jordans on our team and they're scoring all over the place and we should be like, yeah, but you're not scoring. Doesn't matter, it's my team. All that was given up was gained many times over through the church sharing both goods and gifts. So, so look, two big things that you need to recognize based on that, okay? N number one, I need you, I, we need you to be part of the body. You have things that help complete the body. I was asked when I was a young adults pastor, we used to do these Q&A nights where they, you know, we'd write the questions down and I'd rapid fire answers. One of the questions uh, that they asked was, convince me why church is important. This is a young adults group on a Thursday night. A lot of the students came to that, didn't go to church. Convince me why I should go to church. So my answer was this. Uh, number one, uh, I think that if you don't go to church, you're hurting yourself. What I mean by that is the Bible's really clear where it says don't forsake the meeting of yourselves together. And where it says that in the book of Hebrews is in the context of what we call apostasy. In other words, one of the ways that God has planned to keep you in the faith is by you attending the community of faith regularly. And it's not going too far to say that if you decide that you're no longer gonna go to church, what will happen over a period of time is that you will no longer be a Christian. So I think it's in your benefit, it's to your benefit that you attend church. But that's not all. It's, it's to your benefit, but it's also to my benefit, to our benefit, if you attend the church, if you're a part of the church, because we're going to lose that body part. I was in Thailand a number of years ago and I stubbed my left big toe. I mean, this is like eight years ago. I stubbed my left big toe on, on a big um, concrete pad. It's been broken since, right? I can move, I can get it in and out of, of like, I can disjoint it and put it back in. It hurts so much, so much. When it goes out of joint, there's not a single thing other thing that I'm thinking about. I would love to have a very healthy big toe. You, you might be sitting, people might be saying, hey, you know, young adult might be saying, man, I don't really have a lot to offer. I don't have money and I don't have anything. I'm kind of like a big toe. Yeah, we need the big toe. Believe me. You don't, you don't think that your value, well, oh, they don't need me. You, you, what are you talking about? God has invested in you something that now you're holding back from the rest of us and we need it. And if we don't have it, if you withhold it from us, we're going to limp for a long time. There's not that many big toes around. We need all the party parts for the church to function in a healthy way. So I need you to be part of the body. But, but secondly, um, there's no competition in the body. Look, if I belong to you and you belong to me, and we belong to Christ, and we're all one body, there's, there's no competition. 
at all in the body of Christ. Have you ever, if you've been a coach before, in, inevitably, you know, coach of one of these travel teams, one of the things that will end up happening, or your parent on a travel team, you've seen this happen. What will eventually happen is that one of the players will come to you, usually with their parent, and they want to complain about playing time. We think we're better than everybody else, so you need to play us. So the coach now has to have this very difficult conversation, and it usually goes something like, um, you're not as good as you probably think that you are. You have a lot of things to learn. Our plan is to develop you and then get you involved at the point where you actually have a lot to contribute to our team. You're an important member of our team. You bring all sorts of things to the party with your attitude, with your actions, with what you contribute. So we want you to be a really important part of our team, but right now you're not gonna be starting or playing as much as you probably want. It's at that point that the parent calls you names and the kid starts texting the other like travel coaches to see whose team he can get on. And the reason he's texting these other teams is because it's not really about the success of the team, is it? Whose success is it about? Well, mine. I will go to whatever team makes me successful individually. But the coach is like, no, I'm not about just your success. I want you to succeed by succeeding in the team. We are the team of Christ. And when one of us does well, we win. Why in the world would I complain if someone else is doing what I do better than me so that the kingdom and the church can grow and flourish? Why wouldn't I be the first person to be like, man, I'm going to fan you into a flame, man. And when you need a break, in I go. No competition in the church. Man, you spend time around enough pastors, you're like, you guys compete a lot. Yeah, they, we do. I talked this week to a friend who had traveled from Canada, and he told me some stuff about my old church. His wife was one of our uh, admin assistants at our old church. She's an amazing woman, really capable, and she still works there. And so uh, I've been gone now for, what, uh, 18, well, 19, 8, 20 months, something like that. There's, on the one hand, when you leave, you want the church to flourish, but yet at the same time, you're kind of thinking to yourself, I mean, if they struggle a little bit, it's okay, right? Because, you know, one day they might be like, wish we had him back, right? Anyway, he told me that, you know, COVID was really hard in Canada, really decimated a lot of the churches, but he told me that uh, Northview Community Church is about back to 90% of its attendance, you know? And I was like, oh my gosh, that the guy who is a dear friend of mine who took my position is so flourishing and coming to his own and his preaching ministry is growing all the time. And when they told me that, I had two feelings. One of them was, oh, I guess that's good. Because I'm like, oh, but you guys, I'm dead to you now, kind of, right? Like, you don't want me anymore. And then in the, I mean, it just, and yet I, I know that's ridiculous because of this. Because, look, if Mark Birch, the pastor of Northview Community Church in Abbotsford, British Columbia, is just killing it, man, that's a win. It's a win for the kingdom, isn't it? Look, if the church four doors down from us is having revival, fan it into flame, folks. Because there's no competition between body members. We're all one body. Last one. In two minutes and 34, 33 seconds. When we gather... When we gather, some contributions are more edifying than others. We're all one in Christ. We're all one body. Everyone has a part to play. But when we gather, some contributions are more helpful than others. So here we go. Very last part of this. Now, you're the body of Christ and individually members of it. He is summarizing what he just said. You're the body. And what he's talking about in the body is this, the church as a whole, right? Church universal. We're all one body. And God has appointed in the church, wait, first apostles, second prophets, 
Third, teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. He just spent the last, I don't know how long, arguing vehemently that there are no hierarchy in the kingdom of God when it comes to gifts. Yes? Like, that was his point. And then what? He loses his mind? And he's like, actually, I'm an apostle. We're first, right? What's going on? And the answer to that question is in this little phrase. In the church, this word church means gathering. That's what it means, ecclesia. It means the gathering of the people. We're gathering right now. We're, have, we're having church. We're gathering. He was talking about the body of Christ, universal, but now he's like, okay, let's talk about in the church, in the gathering. When you gather, there are going to be lots of different body parts present in the gathering, and some of those body parts are going to be more edifying to people than others in the gathering. In fact, uh, apostles are going to proclaim the word of God. They got it right from God. They gave themselves over to the apostles' teaching, it says in the book of Acts. And so, yeah, we should give them a lot of airtime when we gather. The prophets should get airtime. The teachers should get airtime. The miracles, those are all building people up in the gathering of the church. Gifts of healing. I want to see gifts of healing being, being laid out so that we see people get healed and helping and administrating. Yeah, your you know, spreadsheet might be helpful, I guess, in a gathering, but not as much as apostles and teaching and especially kinds of tongues aren't that helpful because you're just talking to yourself. You're not edifying me when you speak in a tongue. So when we gather, we give privileged time to the more edifying gifts. Are all apostles? This is written in Greek in a way that expects a no answer. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Just as a real aside, we're almost done. <laughs> you know, the, the Pentecostal church has just been dead wrong historically on this. They have basically said that in order for you to be a fully spirit-filled Christian, you have to have the gift of tongues. No, you don't. All don't speak in tongues. Paul says so. Tongues, sir, it's a, it's a gift. Do all interpret? No. But, he says, earnestly desire which ones? The higher gifts. What higher gifts? The more edifying gifts. When you gather together, earnestly desire the more edifying gifts. Gifts. So even though all the gifts are valuable and necessary, some are more edifying than others when we gather. We used to have a thing called the design team for our church services. And when I first showed up at the church where we did that, they said, okay, so the goal of this team is to figure out ways to do things so great that we bring them back next week. And I was like, oh. So in other words, the things that you include on a, on a, in, a, in a church gathering are the basis for what you include is, is basically what is going to wow them most. You know, bring them back next week. But that's not what should happen. What should we do when we gather? How should we divide our time up? Because we're time merchants. What kinds of things should we be doing? Well, the most edifying things. And all the other things would be great, but we're going to do the most edifying things. You know what's most edifying? The apostles' teaching. Woo. So we give a lot of time to it. You know what else is edifying? When these guys sing. Yes? When we spend time in prayer, edifying. When people give testimony, edifying. When somebody does a little dance in the, not edifying. By dance, I mean, you know, like break dancing. Not edifying. Everything that we do should be focused on Edification, which means that the goal of every one of our gatherings as a church is the edification of the people who are there. 
We have failed if you walk out of the church and you are not built up. Here's the way I picture our church, and I'll finish with this image. I hope it's helpful. You know, the Coast Guard's got these cutters, and they just go out, and they tour the water on a stormy day, and they try to figure out if there's people that they need to save out there. You know, their boats are gotten crumpled. The storm sometimes does great damage. You know, logs and things hit the hull of the boat, and after a while that they're out there, the boat gets in such disarray that it needs to come back, and they put it in, in, in dry dock. They pull it out of the water, and when it gets pulled out of the water, there's a whole bunch of technicians and people who, who do work on it. They build it up. They focus on the mission of this boat and, and you know, strategize about where it's gonna go next while people are physically helping the boat to recover. They're checking the engine. Specialists are all doing it. People gifted, all doing this kind of work. And when the time comes, they launch it back out so they can go out and save more people. You do know our church is the dry dock for the Coast Guard. You, every one of you has got, is a Coast Guard cutter, and you go out. Your responsibility and the mission of God is to go and see if you can save the lost. To go and see if you can actually have impact in saving people from the storm, which is raging around them. In doing that, you are going to get beat up. That's what happens in storms. But here's the good news. Every single week, we offer dry dock. If you want to be a healthy, built-up Christian who's capable of achieving the most mission that you can, you should probably come to dry dock as frequently as you can so that the body, gifted as we are, might actually edify you so you can be launched again. And then you come back and we launch. You come back and we launch and then Jesus comes and says, well done. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for your grace. I'm thankful for the word of God. I'm thankful, Lord, that it is compelling in these areas, Lord. So many of us are withholding our gifts from each other, and so many of us are unwilling to share them in really remarkable ways. I pray that that would no longer be the case. And I pray, Father, that you would move us to see how it is that we can commit ourselves further and further to the, the dry dock of God that you might send us out on mission. We pray in Jesus' good name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information on how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbiblechapel.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.